0: Um, A number of years ago I was learning to ride a motorcycle and I took a motorcycle class One of the things that they instilled into me was a little bit of fear And it came in the form of a phrase called, look down, go down Any motorcycle riders down here? You know what that means? That means in a turn, if you look down, you're going to fall down And so what they encourage us to do is, in a turn on a motorcycle You are to look out to where you're going, not looking down And then you won't fall down. Your body will just turn naturally and you'll get to where you're going. We've been going through Isaiah for quite a long time now and we've made it to Isaiah chapter 54. When we read this chapter, I hope you'll notice there's a lot of future tense verbs in this chapter. And just like the original audience, we are to read this chapter and see what's coming ahead. To put our gaze ahead a lot of wills and shalls, because this will tell us where things are going, what God is doing, where, where our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts and decisions will be impacted by this future perspective, because not only is the future, but it's, it's reality right now. And if we fail to do that, just like the original audience, we will be tempted to go the wrong way. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, you see those little numbers that are in there? Those are were added later on. That was like the 13th century or something like that. So back in the original context, those numbers weren't there. And so to start in chapter 54, I actually wanted to start reading in chapter 53, just to give you the sense of the transition here. We're going to start in chapter 53, verse 10. Now, if you were here last week, this was about the servant, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations. And will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer." This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, And lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not me, not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of the coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises in you, rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. If you look on your outline, we're going to cover this chapter in three points. Our first point is under verses one through, three, 1 through 3, the unexpected expanding family. If you would look with me, let's make a few observations. Verse 1 and verse 2 starts by giving commands to the audience. The first 1 is to sing or to shout for joy, as another translation might have. And verse 2 says, enlarge the place of your tent. Lengthen and strengthen its cords. And the reason to do this is because there is something new happening. This new and unexpected family is coming, and this family is going to be large. Let's consider some aspects of this family. First, it it is unexpected. In verse 1, you have a picture of a barren woman who is going to have children. This is an impossible situation, it is a miraculous situation. Barrenness, the inability to have children, is a crushing weight. It's very difficult to bear. And it can involve a lot of shame. What we have here is this miraculous reversal where this barren woman has children. Notice that the joy and the singing is also unexpected. The, the singing comes before the children even come. It says that she is to sing even though she has never been in labor. And there's another reason why it's, the singing is unexpected. And it's because this woman pictured here will have more children than this other woman who is married and has children. Now, we're not going to turn there, but this is connected into other parts of Isaiah. If you want to write it down, Isaiah 47, 8, and 9, Babylon, which was represented of the real city, but the, 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 the nation of Babylon that God used to bring judgment on Israel at this time, or in the future for Isaiah's time, they are described as a mother, Isaiah 47. In Isaiah 49, 19, and 20, Jerusalem, which pictures God's people, was also described as a mother. And so in Isaiah, when when you have this comparison between the barren woman and the woman with children, you can't help but bring to mind Israel seeing themselves in in that position and Babylon, their enemy, as the other. So another reason for this unexpected seeing is that though they see themselves themselves under God's judgment, and their enemies prospering and flourishing, their enemies are going to be humiliated, and they are going to be lifted up. Unexpected. Now, this family is also expanding. Verse 2, the command is to enlarge the place of your tent. And I like how it says, do not hold back. You get the sense here. This family is going to be so large, and you're going to make this tent to, to house all these people, do not hold back. You will probably underestimate the size when you're when you're figuring out the new size of this tent. So do not hold back. Verse 3, it says, you will spread out to the right and to the left. You're going to go far. And it says, your offspring or your children will possess nations. So this family is taking over the whole earth. Now, whose family is this? Whose family is this that is unexpected and expanding? Well, we need to look at the context, which is why I started in 53, verse 10. When it was talking about the servant, if you remember back then, it said, He shall see his offspring. This is the servant's offspring in mind here. Now, for Isaiah's uh, audience in the historical context, they would rightly understand That God would restore Jerusalem and bring his people back from exile. But this family that is growing and taking over the whole world has to be seen through the lens of being ultimately fulfilled by the servant and his offspring. They are the children of the one who was crushed for their sin. And so ultimately the audience is to sing and get a bigger tent because of the servant's offspring. And his family will stretch out all over the world. Now, on this side of history, we know the story of Jesus, and we know that his kingdom, his family, if you will, is expanding throughout the world. Uh, The Apostle Paul quoted verse 1 here of chapter 54 in Galatians 4, and he, he was describing this new Jerusalem, this new heavenly city, where people can be citizens of that city. And it's the same idea that those who follow Jesus can be in this family that is expanding all over the world. And because of that, how this impacts us is very similar to them. It's because it's because of that truth we can sing as well. We can sing because a miracle has happened. A miracle. See, we are all spiritually barren we have no hope we bear the shame and if you are a Christian it's a miracle that you are a Christian John chapter 1 verse 12 says this yet to all who received him he's talking about Jesus to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God so believing in Jesus you are entered into this family and you can sing we also sing because just as in verse 1, there's this role reversal of the enemy going down and, and, and the uh, uh, God's people rising up. I think of Romans 5 verse 20 where Paul writes, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so for you and for I, we need to choose joy in this great role reversal that's going on. And this is especially true when in your life, the Babylon. The sin seems so large and looms so big, you have to trust in the promises that the Jerusalem, the barren one, will have more children, because that is the reality. We also enlarge the place of the tent. Like I said, Jesus' kingdom, his family is expanding all over the world in men and women's hearts. And we need to act in a way that is reflective of that truth. Now, just yesterday morning, I was I was feeling uh, a little down and discouraged when I was thinking about I've been having a more of a passion to reach my neighbors, but I was getting discouraged because I was like, "My neighbors are they ever going to become a Christian?" And then I was thinking, "Why doesn't anyone want to become a Christian?" It's like it's so amazing, it's so great. And, you know, and, and in God's uh, timing. I was doing the sermon on this chapter, so reflecting and meditating on these words, enlarge the place of your tent. Enlarge the place of your tent. Yes, he doesn't say when people are going to fill it out or how people are going to fill in this tent, but he says get ready because they will, and that encouraged my perspective to move out and move forward. I ended up did talking with my neighbor, and um, but it was just a good reminder to enlarge the place of your tent, what does that look like for you to enlarge your tent, to act in a way of expecting this reality? You know, maybe it means lending your car out to someone. Maybe it means buying a bigger grill so you can do more cookouts to invite your neighbors over to. Maybe it means giving to missions work or praying. Or maybe it simply means making sure every acquaintance that you have knows that you're a Christian. Enlarge the place of your tent and shout for joy, for a miracle has happened in you if you are in Christ. So God's people are to respond in joy and preparation for this unexpected and expanding family. Now let's move on to point number two, promises to a beloved bride. Verse four. Verse four starts with two commands, to fear not and be not confounded. Now, this may seem a little bit odd. It's a little bit odd to me because in the first two or three verses, there's this uh, more joyous focus of singing and enlarging your tent and great expectation, but then it's followed up with verse four, to not fear. Now, now why is that? Why would this audience be concerned with that possibility to fear? Well, part of the answer to that question is, if you know their history, why were they going into exile in the first place? It's because they rebelled against God and sinned against him. And we could look at many verses in Isaiah, but one I wanted to point out was in one verse four, talking about uh, God's people. Isaiah says this, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So because they rebelled against their maker, they were faced with the shame of their sin and this this disgrace that came upon them for rejecting their Lord. But notice in verse 4 here, this call is to not allow this past shame and disgrace to become a stumbling block for them. You will not be ashamed. You will not be disgraced, he says. And in the second part of that verse, notice that there's a a time frame that Isaiah is helping them to consider. He says, you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. So from youth to widowhood, it's the picture of this whole life. Shame is not there any longer. And and if you noticed, shame is mentioned four times on each line of this poem. You guys can't really... It's not typeset up there on the screen. But each line of this poem has this idea of shame in it and it being gone. Verse 5 through 10, Isaiah goes on to paint this picture of this, this husband who is moving towards this bride and making these promises to her to back up this command that they should not shame or feel shame. And if you notice in verse 5 it starts off with the Lord for your maker is your husband. And if you look up there in verse 5 you see there are four different descriptions of who God is. And it is no mistake that those four are listed and there are four do not shames right before it. The Lord himself is your husband. And he will overcome all of that shame. All any of that shame that you would associate with your past or even the future. See, in the context again, what the servant did last week to take on the punishment of sin was a permanent work that has eliminated the possibility of shame. Of their past shame being associated with them. And not only that... One commentator says this, he says about this repetition in light of the servant's work, he says that the truths here rule out every possibility of disappointment or being ashamed in the future. This is the husband who wants his beloved bride to know that he is the redeemer, he has pulled them out of sin, And that shame should be no more. Now, how did he do that? Verse 7 and 8. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Notice the contrast there between moment and everlasting Again, the context is so key here. Isaiah 53, verse 5. The servant was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we were healed. So yes, they were in exile, but they were truly healed by the servant's sacrifice. If you remember, Jesus talked about Isaiah 53, and he said, that was talking about me. And when Jesus was on the cross, if you remember, one of the things that he said was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. He was the one who was abandoned for their sake, to bring them back, which is what verse 6 says. The Lord has called you back. Now, what does this wife get when she is called back to her husband? Verse 9 and 10. She's given this monumental promise, like the days of Noah. And and, and what, what he's talking about there is when, when Noah uh, built the ark and God flooded the whole world to start over again, he promised Noah, when you see my rainbow in the sky, that is an everlasting promise, that I will never destroy the, the world again through water. And so this, this promise here, if you look down in 10, my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. This is an eternal promise for his beloved. So she is not to be ashamed or to be rejected, but to be for the, the forever object of her husband's unbreakable love. And again, this new covenant is made sure by the work of the servant. So... What we have so far here is that we have this expanding family. We have this marriage built on these promises. 2 Peter 1 4, he talks about God's promises. He says they are precious and they are very great. And these promises are not just made by, by a human like a husband would make to his wife, these are made by God himself. Utterly trustworthy. And what does he say to his bride? Verse 4, do not fear. Um, I still struggle with fear. You probably do too. For many years, though, I would say there was a very intense struggle between fear and anxiety and this mix of both where um, for for a long time in the past, I would just be afraid of, of what did I do wrong? And in the future, I'd be worried about what's coming down the pike. Am I going to be ready for it? And it kept bouncing back and forth between these two worlds, day in and day out, with a lot of fear and anxiety. Learned a lot of lessons through those days, but one of the things that is the foundation for the growth and change in my life is holding on to these promises because it doesn't matter what other people think, but what matters is what God thinks. And here... He calls you and I not to fear. You will not be ashamed, and you will not be disgraced. He says, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. So, if you want this to be true in your life, make the Lord your God, your maker, your husband, and do not fear. So the Lord makes these promises to his beloved bride. And, and again, we have, we have a family, we have a marriage, and then we move on to our third point here. Where do all of these people live? Verses 11 through 17, he tells us, it is a city, a lavish security for the Lord's servants. In verse 11, he tells us about the city and he tells us about some of the, the building materials that go into this city. Um, I'm not going to try to ex- describe all those, those stones, and, and in fact, people don't really know what some of them are. But the point is very clear, that what you have in this city, from its foundations, what he describes, all the way up to the pinnacles, which he describes, you have these precious stones at the end of verse 12 precious stones so what you have here is you have a a beautiful and wealthy city in verse 14 it says in righteousness you shall be established and so the inhabitants of this city are right with God this beautiful lavish city and in 14 you see what it's like to live there it says you shall be far from oppression you shall not fear And from terror, for it shall not come near to you. And this is describing two kinds of threats to them. One is internal, one is external. Internally, they are not to fear. Externally, there is no there's no one that's going to come even bring the possibility of an attack. It shall not come near you. The external and the internal threats of fear are removed. And in verses 15 to 17, the author explains more of his rationale why this external threat is no threat at all. In 15, it says, if anyone stirs up strife. And this is a big if. If it were to happen, look at the end of the verse. You know, they shall fall because of you. So it's, they're wiped out, if that were to happen. In verse 16, God displays His sovereignty. He says, I have created the smith. At the end of verse 16, I have created the ravenger. And what this means is verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall succeed. And in the next line of verse 17, it it pictures like a court case or a courtroom. Think about that. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. And so if the attack happens to come in this legal maneuver, they will refute that judgmental accusation. So this is how the city operates and how its inhabitants live. There's one more verse I didn't mention, which was verse 13. He says, all of your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In this new city, the people there have a unique and direct relationship with God. Jesus actually quoted verse 13, or part of verse 13, in John 6:45, and in, in that interaction he was talking to people and trying to convince his hearers that if you have a relationship with the Father, you would listen to me and you would have a relationship with me. You would have life through the Son. And just like verse 13 says, you shall have great peace. Again, Isaiah 53 verse 5, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we were healed. And so those are what, that, that is what these inhabitants experience day in and day out. There's this peace, this covenant of peace where there's no more war and how awesome is that? How would you like no more war, no more threats, no more fear? No more terror, no more tragedies, and no more sorrow. This city doesn't have any of those. This city is unlike any city that has ever existed. Listen to this commentator. He says this, Isaiah's book rests on the contrast between the city that mankind builds without God, which ends in destruction, And the city of God in all its eternal glory. This is the city that God builds. So maybe you're wondering that sounds great. How do I become a citizen of that city? How do I get into that family? How do I get that closeness to God and obtain all of these promises? Well, the answer to those questions are in verse 17. He says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This word translated heritage here in the ESV uh, doesn't describe like an inheritance in the sense of of you'll get it later. But it describes a, a, a reality of the possession that is happening now. So this is their reality now for the servants of the Lord. Alec Montier, who's a pretty famous commentator on this, uh, this section, he says this, The saving work of the servant from Isaiah chapter 53 has created servants, plural, who now share his title. Servants, plural, who now share the same title as the servant. So in other words, if you want freedom from the shame of your past, from, from forgiveness for the sins that you've committed... If you want a relationship with God who loves you, if you want this rock-solid peace in your life that this city experiences, then you must become a servant of the servant. Lowercase s, big case s. Servant of the servant. And how do you become one? Or if you are one, how do you remember that you are one and continue to operate that way? on uh, on Friday I was having a conversation with somebody and uh they were they were having trouble with this idea of a of a continuing faith in Jesus and I gave them this analogy I said what if you're drowning and you're desperate and you're thrown a life-saving uh device I bet that you would try to hold on to that life-saving device wouldn't you and they said that's a good point Verse 1, sing, O barren one who did not bear. See, the one who is spiritually barren will never sing. They will never rejoice until the moment they know that there is a way out of that spiritual barrenness and emptiness, until they know that it can be overcome by the love of God that wipes away all sin and gives your heart peace. Peace that lasts. So, gang, if you want to enter this city, if you want to experience the fullness of these promises, then then hold on to Jesus. Sing about him, talk about him, rejoice in him, do what he wants you to do, for that's what servants do. Be in his family. Act in expectation of his kingdom growing. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And then finally, a word here on, the, on these promises. We are uh, obviously not yet fully in this family, marriage, or city just yet. These promises here in chapter 54 are real, and they impact our lives right now. Now, if you're in Christ, you have eternal life right now, but we're not in heaven yet story my dad tells that's that's uh really awesome he uh There's a guy in his Bible study who's in his eighties, and I've met this guy full of life very exciting kind of guy he uh He was rushed to the hospital one time uh, with a life threatening situation, and the doctors worked on him and he He made it through, and uh, he was released from the hospital and came back home. And he was telling the story, he lamented the fact that he got better, and he came back home. And he said, he was telling the story, he said, man, I almost made it to heaven. (laughs) I almost made it. These promises we have are true, they impact our lives right now. They give us direction. But the reality of heaven is right around the corner. So keep persevering. Keep serving the servant. Rejoice in the forgiveness. Rejoice in being in his family. Rejoice that you were part of a miracle. And if you haven't been, enter into that miracle. Grow in your relationship with God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the servant's work that has enabled us to see clearly Isaiah 54 and all of its promises and to see your love more clearly. Help us to never forget and to not stray. Help us to look ahead. Help us to look ahead to this heavenly home. Help us to see that you are expanding your family throughout the world. At times, we may not see how that's happening. But Lord, give us grace to act in a way that reflects its true reality. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.